The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 16th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president has put forth ideas for his budget. He's going to cut Meals on Wheels, going to cut the State Department, all grants to the Justice Department, which Mick Mulvaney, director of the OMB, said on Morning Joe, the Morning Joe was out, he said they were only cutting redundant programs at the Department of Justice, programs that don't work or aren't cost effective. Even though you see a reduction, for example, in the Department of Justice, the amount of money they have to enforce the laws actually go up. We cut a bunch of grant programs. We have grant programs in the Department of Justice, something I didn't even know about till I got into this job. So it might seem odd and contradictory to support your claim that these programs aren't working and then you provide as existing evidence the further claim that you've never heard of the programs. It doesn't really quite work, does it? Hey, I just found out they existed, but upon learning about them, I decided they didn't work. Now, I found out they existed too. I kind of was vaguely aware. I didn't know the names of them. But upon investigation, you tell me how popular this will be. Some of the programs that are run under the auspices of the Department of Justice grants include the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking, which spells smart and might not be that smart to eliminate, Office of Victims of Crime, and Office on Violence Against Women. They don't make sense. But to be fair, the White House doesn't set the budget. Congress does. And this seems more or less like a garden variety Republican budget. Also, discretionary spending. It's only about a quarter of all expenditures. But once again, like I said, garden variety Republican. Guess what's on the chopping block? CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And of course, the pushback against this is they're picking on Big Bird. Now, if I was a Republican who wanted to cut the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, I would be desperate to switch it away from the icon of Big Bird. I mean, at least if the debate were about they're thinking of cutting Snuffleupagus, I mean, Snuffleupagus, he's not going to go talk to anyone, right? Snuffleupagus gets stitches. Isn't that it? Isn't that, isn't that why he's not talking? Anyway, from what I understand, after I stopped watching Snuffy, he did go and he did tell. Now, the argument, if you want to be a cutter of PBS or NPR, is that these shows would do well in the marketplace. Look at all the shows on PBS Kids, and then look at all the shows on Nickelodeon Kids. There are a lot of shows on Nick Kids or Nick Jr. that are just as good or better than the PBS Kids. In fact, I bet all the shows kind of pitch themselves to both networks. However, I do have to say this. As a parent, I've watched both the Nick and the PBS. And then Nick has some good shows, Yo Gabba Gabba, that's a great one. But what PBS doesn't have are those terrible shows, those gateway drug shows to watching Nick Sr. shows or Disney Channel shows with a bunch of obnoxious tweens saying the worst sitcom-y jokes in the world. And furthermore, the PBS shows... There are little grace notes within them. Like Super Y is about grammar. That's a good show. Thomas the Train, though English, is about self-empowerment and public transportation. And there's even the show I didn't like that much. I mean, it still exists. Uh, My kids have just aged out of the group that watches it. It's called Dinosaur Train. But my friend who's a geologist points out that this show never mixes dinosaurs from different periods. 
That's a little PBS grace note. I thank PBS for that. Of course, the real reason is I worked at NPR. If you cut the budget, they will survive. They could float by in the marketplace. They'll just do it like every other broadcaster does. When it comes time to make budget, they're definitely going to cut a bunch of their foreign bureaus. They're not exactly cost effective. So if you want to cut PBS or if you want to cut NPR, you can make the argument it won't get any worse, but it will definitely get worse. And by the way, the Trump White House wants both PBS and NPR to get worse. On the show today, I spiel about orange populists at home and abroad. But speaking of NPR, we are joined now by Kelly McEvers, whose day job is hosting NPR's All Things Considered. She is here, or actually was there because we talked at a conference in Anaheim. She was there to talk about, among other things, the new season of Embedded which is a top podcast and wouldn't be possible without listeners like you. I thought I thought those uh, car bombings in El Salvador. I mean, you got what comedy you could out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to like it's contrast. Mm-hmm. You have to have like the right. Yeah. If you if we really were going to go to the dark places, we would have done ATC sad cello theme. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a good. I sometimes have that scoring, the saddest jokes. moment of my Sorry. life. Wah, 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 wah. How do you get back from one of those? Oh, you don't. And yeah. You like, have to read an introduction. And when I worked at, and yeah, and when I worked at NPR, there was always such sensitivity about, you know, well, we can't put this fun story next to that sad one. And I'm like, all we have. Or we sad could. Yeah. Because, yeah, otherwise people are going to Right, or, yes, yeah, yeah. you know what? We need that sad cello buffer. There, what there should be is sad cello into happy cello. Like, oh. We should do, like, or, like, sad to klezmer. Cello. Yeah, we should do a mashup just to take us from you know, uh, some water in the West story, which I think is the saddest story of all. Right. Just because people turn off the radio. And, you know, <laughs> so into sad. the Kurds. Start talking about the drought. Kelly, drought on the radio? Kelly I'm, I'm loving or I've loved the Embedded podcast, but I've long been a fan of your reporting. I worked at NPR for about 10 years. I don't think we ever met. I know. Because right. you were never in America. Right. So right. T- yeah. take me through some of your overseas postings, maybe even before NPR. Before and NPR? Then, yeah. Uh, Cambodia, Indonesia. I spent a bunch of time in the Caucasus, everybody's mm-hmm. favorite place, yeah. North and South Caucasus, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, Baghdad, Istanbul, Riyadh, Beirut, and then, you know, traveling to all the great places, Yemen. Bahrain, um, <laughs> Syria. So you yeah. go to, say, Beirut, and that is at the height of a war? Do you, are you in Beirut during peaceful times? Beirut is generally kind of like a peaceful place. Now it like is, There was yeah. like that long war thing in right. the 80s, lasted like 15 years. and every, So everybody uses Beirut as like an adjective for like yeah. really effed up. Yeah. But it's actually kind of cool now. It's like yeah. nice and fun and there's like a lot of drinking. Well, I mean, um, people like to contrast it. They say, you know, Beirut was the Paris of the Middle right. East before the war and then it's like Beirut. But it's like Beirut out there is, you know, it's like something on steroids or it's like it's something like on something crack. It's like a 90s go-to. Yeah. yeah. And there's like still buildings that have like big holes on them. I mean, like it's still, I think that's why people kind of like it. There's still something about it that feels like dangerous. And that's why people party like it's 1999. Um, yeah, bombing there, chic. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, so Beirut's pretty great. Um, but it's like an hour and a half away from Damascus. So it's like this place where you can sort of be perched and like, you know, covering and watching the situation in Syria unfold. And like a bunch of times we would sneak over the border into Syria. You could do that from Lebanon, although that was a little sketchy. And so we would fly to Turkey and then sneak in that way with yeah. the Syrian rebels. This is, this is the, the, the downside of porous borders is lots of uh, Islamic rebels. The good side is good journalists are allowed in. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, the same corridors. We would be going into the border. I would never forget this with these guys with like long beards and like gun-sized boxes. And we're like, what are you going to be up to in there? And like, I'm a doctor. And you're like, yeah, great. So am I. Yeah. Um, I'm a part of uh, Doctors Without Scruples. <laughs> Medicine sans scrupulaire. <laughs> Um, but what I, what I think what I meant is, so when you are covering a war zone, you are living sometimes in the war zone, but do you try to live in a peaceful place right. and just yeah. do toe yeah, touches into the war zone? you don't live, I mean, it's with Syria, like, you know, very few journalists, um, except for the Syrian journalists who are covering conflict, covering their conflict themselves, live there. I mean, a lot of people kind of come in and out. And same, when I was in Baghdad, I was there in 2010. I mean, it wasn't... There wasn't a war in, mm-hmm. in Iraq in 2010, really. Um, we lived on a regular street in a regular house. You know, the green zone was across the river. It was a pretty fortified situation where American embassy was and all the Iraqi officials lived. But by and large, it was a fairly normal life. Lots of checkpoints. I mean, we did have armed guards, you know, and towers outside of our house around the clock. Um, but it's not like an active, you know, and you'd hear, okay, so you'd hear explosions a couple times a night. But... Um, it was pretty normal. It was totally normal. Yeah. It was, yeah. Normal it was like Lower Manhattan in the 80s. Yeah. Right. Um, so, Mortars, yeah. So you talk about the armed guards. There are two philosophies of security. And one is, let's live behind barricades, let's have armaments. And the other is, let's kind of go incognito right. and not make too big a deal. Right. Is, uh, is there a right way or a wrong way, or does it depend on the specific kind of war zone you're in? It depends a lot on that. I mean, I think like when we would go into Syria, we would be very low key. Um, we'd always have a team of just a couple of us. I mean, the great thing about it, people are always like, isn't it hard to be a woman in the Middle East? No, it's amazing because, you know, I just put on hijab, speak Arabic, you know, go through a checkpoint with my colleagues who are Syrians, and, you know, we're very much under the radar, and that's yeah. definitely the way you want to do it. I guess not being, because a you're woman, to like, yeah. being a woman who doesn't need anonymity to not get killed, that's the next hurdle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, that kind of woman. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, that's definitely one way to do it, uh, and it's, it's a smart way to do it. It's not that you're trying to conceal the fact that you're a journalist. You're telling people who you are once you get there, but it's sort of the moving around that you don't want to bring attention to yourself. In Baghdad, that. I mean, we did live on a normal street with, you know, in a normal neighborhood with regular neighbors and stuff, but I mean, everybody knew. Like, if you asked anyone, like, where are the journalists? They'd be right there. Yeah. Um, and that's just uh, the way it's going to be. Like, you just have to sort of know that you're going to be, that your, your, your location is going to be known and that you're going to be kind of a target. Right. So. You're the one neighbors who, when someone says a funny anecdote, you're like, and can you spell your surname? <laughs> yeah. That is a... Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is your age? So, you did a documentary a few years ago called Diary of a Bad Year. Diary of a Bad Year. I always have the happiest things yeah. in my show. And essentially, like, it's so kind of coming to terms with your being uh, reporting from war. You're an adrenaline junkie to some extent. I don't you, believe in that. No? Nope. You needed the war? Nope. You needed war reporting? Nope. Okay, then did I, list, <laughs> did I listen wrong? No. Just, you examined you know, your own this psychology. This idea that you can be like, yeah, I totally did. And like this idea that you can be like addicted to adrenaline. I don't know. I just think that's like a pop 
like psychology thing that people throw out there all the yeah. time and I'm just not sure it wasn't like I was like dude I woke up and I'm like I need my fix I'm feeling sick you know like I gotta get some more like it's just I don't for one thing like I just didn't do a whole lot of combat mm-hmm. you know like I would just be like yeah you guys go over there and like the, I mean because guess what combat sounds like on the radio boom yeah boom yeah boom like it's boring it's actually not that great a radio except for the day we were on the front line and this guy was using a karaoke machine to like talk to the enemy uh-huh. on the other side. He was, was like, it like we're ma- going to bomb you if you bomb us. Was and it the a guy was Madonna like, back It was his response. No, was like he no, he didn't have anything? any music. No, but yeah. he was singing it like yeah. in Arabic, like, dude, yeah. we're going to bomb your ass. And the other guy was like, <laughs> that was his response. And so that was like, that was good radio. But usually like, they it's did that not, for you. They knew it. They, they, they knew totally ATC did. was there. Yeah. usually it's bad radio and not that like i don't know i just like you go up to a fighter and you're like hey and he's like yo you know i mean there's not like they don't actually have a lot to say like there's not a lot of stories so for me like the stories are in the towns and the villages and like that have changed hands and like how are you like getting electricity and like who's got who's taking care of the food and like how did you get here and like why do you believe in this and like all you know that to me is the interesting stuff so yeah, was I like addicted to that in some way? Yes, but did it have to do with some like chemical th- thing happening in my brain that felt like drugs? Eh, I don't know. I don't buy it. Okay, so when after after you come back from uh, a reporting gig where the stakes are life and death, does reporting on what should be you know uh, an important say domestic story does Going that to the city council meeting feels kind of boring? It, yeah, right. After that yeah. right, but even even important stories, a charter school story, things that are important to people that should be well reported. Can you just not get it up to report (laughs) on that? I thought that was going to be a problem. And then I came back to America and I was like, whoa, America kind of messed up. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, yeah, kind of some problems here. And not that dissimilar. I remember when uh, I think it was uh, Falwell died. And I was saying to myself, how come the phrase radical cleric isn't making its way into all the newscasts? Exactly. <laughs> Muqtada el Sadr. Yeah. Jerry Falwell. Are we so different from Sunni and Shia? At least those people can articulate what their differences right, right, are. Right, right. You know, it was at like least it was 1,400 years yeah. ago. Here's the problem. Like it's <laughs> they, like they follow Ali. We. Right. I mean, it's at like, least at least yeah. it's written down somewhere. I you know, know. as and opposed you can to this vague sense of grievance. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there, uh, there are reporters who we know who I felt in the war zone were great because they were around a chaotic situation, a crazy situation, and they really calmed things down. Mm-hmm. The same reporter who I'm thinking of came to America and was like told to report on a Halloween store. And what you're supposed to do is make that really exciting. And she couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, I, I, maybe it's just a skill set. Maybe it's maybe a result it's of being an editor's problem. Like, that's why would you too. assign that person a Halloween store? Like, yeah. that's really like, let's think about this a little bit. Yeah. You know, like I came back and they were like, go to the border. You know, I mean, they were like, <laughs> oh, yeah, do something you know, they, were, they knew what they were, yeah. they, what they had, they were dealing with. They were like, that animal's going to go crazy in the cage. Go let her out, you know, like a couple of times. I want to ask you about Embedded, but I want to ask you this very existential question. Mm -hmm. Do you think good foreign reporting actually leads to good policies for a country? Wow. I mean, I'm going to have to say no, because I think we did some pretty good stuff on Syria, and nothing, nothing, nothing happened. Like, I'm not saying we should have done this, we should have done that, like, 
I'm not saying there was a clear good answer in Syria, but I'm also saying that we have an administration that did nothing. That, I mean, I would sit, I would go to these conferences where the Syrian opposition, whatever that means, would get together trying to hammer out something, and you'd have people from the State Department, good Americans working really hard, and they're like, we can't get the White House on the phone. They Mm -hmm. won't pick up our calls. They do not want this. They got elected on the idea that Iraq, the Iraq war was a mistake. It's in the rearview mirror. It's over. They want nothing to do with this. And again, I don't have an answer for what they should have done, but I feel like doing nothing was not the response. I'm going to take a policy digression and ask you about that. It would seem with this horrible humanitarian catastrophe with the most refugees since World War II that whatever we did do, we shouldn't have done. Yet you can make the analogy. It's like the football team who's fourth and one and they decide to run and they get stuffed. And so everyone will then say, well, you should have passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't prove that you should have passed. And in fact, passing might have led to an interception or something worse. <laughs> yeah. But the point the point is, do you do you believe that the evidence, the the best argument for having done something can't just be that things are terrible now? No. You no. have to be able to say that whatever the solution was, boots on the ground, humanitarian corridors, you know, yeah. air support would have no been fly better. Zones, right. Could, Arming mean, the rebels, training I, the rebels, yeah. helping would, them take them out. Finding whatever. the rebels, yeah, vetting right. the rebels. Yeah. Knowing a, who they yeah. are, all yeah. five of them. Yeah. So I'm I not mean, sure that it would have worked. No, better. I, it's, I'm not basing, I'm basing this on what I saw in 2011, 2012 when I was there, you yeah. know, like in the place looking at and talking to the people. Um, and also just like there is a thing called the loss of human life life mm-hmm. and the responsibility to protect a thing that we did in um you know um in the balkans a thing we've done in other places a thing that we haven't done in some places and um there's just there, you have to think about that in some way i yeah. mean what's you know samantha power like where are you like what do you think about all well from this? what i understand a lot of the uh women in the administration wanted to intervene for humanitarian purposes and a lot of the men maybe too well learned the lesson of the last war which is don't involve yeah, U.S. troops. And look at Libya. Yeah. I mean, not okay. Like uh, The Middle East is an area where in Libya we did intervene and we fucked up. In yeah. Egypt, we lightly intervened and we, and fucked, we totally up. fucked up. In Syria, we didn't intervene and, and we, we fucked, fucked up. up. In the Iraq war, that was we our total... The biggest fuck up of all time. Yes. Yeah, so... so Tunisia is the only thing that went well. In the Arab Spring, <laughs> it's possible that it is the only one that yeah. will end with a happy note. Okay, so embedded comes, embedded comes along or mm-hmm. you... Come back to NPR, and well, how's it go? They say we want you to host ATC, and you said only if I get to do uh, some radio <laughs> documentaries, <laughs> something like that. Something like that. Okay. <laughs> so you have a, you have a little leverage, and was it the case that so if people don't know during Morning Edition or All Things Considered, pretty much the biggest chunk is like almost an eight minute chunk. Yeah, we have an eleven minute segment in Ooh, ATC. An eleven yeah. minute eleven segment. Eleven which, whole which is minutes good. of radio. Hey, look, listen. Yeah. If we're delving deep into the uh, you know Kurds. Sunni Shiite thing, maybe 11 minutes Oof, is enough God, to tell you. terrible yeah. 11 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you just wanted to go longer? Yeah, no. No, 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 no. I wanted to be in this world of podcasts where you like get to tell stories in a totally different way and you like get to be a person and you like get to talk about stuff and like you're talking to your friends and that's, yeah. that's right. So this, like do this kind of reporting, but do it in a, I mean, like what, what did we all learn from serials? Like, oh, look, I mean, in addition to like whodunit crack, like every people like journalism, like they're cool with that. Mm-hmm. They'll go along for the ride. Like if you're going to go discover a thing, they'll come with you if they trust you and they know that you're not perfect and you fuck up sometimes and you know, you're no longer longer this anchor who's just going to tell you how it is 
and I don't know, just see what happens. Like that seems to be a form of doing this thing that we've been doing for decades and decades that was interesting and new. And like, you can go on a journey in four minutes. You can yeah. take people on. I mean, you can make a piece of theater um, in four or five minutes that has a beginning, a middle and end and has a kind of question that people want to answer. And I mean, I think there's a lot you can do. It's not just about length, right? It's just... It's not just that it's better, that longer is better. I mean, I think that's a danger. You know, I think a journalist Absolutely. who wants their stories to be really long can like get really flabby. I think that's a big danger with podcasts. I think you have to try really hard, you know, not to be too indulgent. So my last question is this. Um, I think the po- you wanted to get into the podcast form. The podcast form, podcasting can be a great boon to foreign reporting. And yet at the same time, you could also make the argument that you know, one of the selling points of podcasting is telling these big old legacy media companies that we could be nimbler and then we could be looser. And I think some of those things are actually the antithesis of foreign reporting. Like, mm. You need a lot of resources to do foreign reporting. Yeah. And if the lesson of podcasting is we could cheap do it on the, yeah, yeah, we, we could do it on the cheap. cheap. And that we could do it with maybe the people without, you don't, you don't need 15 years of experience to do it. I don't think that's necessarily true with the best foreign No, reporting. right. Well, it's like resources intensive undertaking. Is. I mean, the thing about embedded is not all foreign reporting for sure. It's just like, um, you know, again, when they need, they know they need to let the animal out of the cage. They're like, go, go do this thing. You go do Ebola because we yeah. know you'll do that and like go El Salvador. So I was already on assignment in El Salvador for like some other thing. And this is classic NPR, right? Somebody's paying for it out of their budget. Yeah. And so I'm doing it for them and then like it was literally our last day in El Salvador we had finished this reporting assignment that we were on for the for ATC what was the um, it was report? about the gang violence okay. um, but it was this bigger project that was funded by the global health unit okay. um, it was about how women are being affected by the gang violence part of this 15 girls thing anyone we were there for like 10 days with tons of reporting I was like sick as a dog there was this weird disease going around called chikungunya I was convinced that I had chikungunya which I didn't but I was really sick and I was laying in my hotel room and it was like supposed to fly out the next day and um, the gals that I'm working with who are going to be here on stage, they're here, come knocking on my door and they're like, um, you got to come. This bus, this, they're killing, they're executing bus drivers. And I was like, holy shit. And I just was like, all right. And I turned the tape recorder on. I'm like, next 24 hours, whatever happens, embedded, go. So, I mean, yes, it took a lot of resources to get us there and to like do the kind of reporting that we were doing for this other thing. But then it was just like, whoa, we got 24 hours here. Wherever this crazy thing goes... Let's just see what happens. And that was an episode. So that was kind of nimble, yeah. I would say, like in some ways. You know well, what yeah. I mean? Like it doesn't take a ton, you know, sometimes to just do the kind of reporting that you can then. And then that became a pretty suspenseful, like 30 minutes, you know, whatever. However that thing played out, um, I think was kind of an interesting story that you wouldn't have been able to do on a regular show. Kelly McEvers, she survived the uh Chicken Gunya by proxy. Right, yeah. And she's bad. ridden with the Cossacks. Kelly McEvers, embedded, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you, Charlie. I'm going to help Thank you. you. Thank Thanks. you. And now the spiel. Populism. It's sweeping the Brits, the Americans, the French, but the Dutch, not so much. The populist wave was Amsterdammed, Rotterdammed. They held firm against the twerp of Antwerp, Gert Wilders. Lots of people are described as the Trump of Duterte is the Trump of the Philippines. Kevin O'Leary is the Trump of Canada. 
But Gert Wilders really is the Trump of the Netherlands. For one, he's orange. He's an orange-hued man, which in Holland is in and of itself a statement of nationalism. For another, his hair makes Trump's hair look like Mike Brady's hair. Geert has way more than Trump hair. He has Milo Yiannopoulos hair. But the Wilder party underperformed in national elections. They're the PVV, which stands for Party for Freedom. From Moroccans, that part's implied. The PVV did gain five seats, but it was projected to do much better, at least twice as well. There will be no Gert Wilders era, but the Dutch, because they have a parliamentary system and a general sense of decency, were never going to align their parties to give him the prime ministership anyway. But if Wilders will go back to wandering the wilderness of the backbenches of the Tweed Kamer, a question does remain. How do you pronounce Geert? I think I've been doing it wrong. Because today on the BBC, I heard from a Politico Europe editor named Naomi O'Leary saying Geert this way. And then the announcer of the same BBC show, Jackie Leonard, said it this way. But I thought it would be best, again, within the same broadcast, to go with the pronunciation of an actual Dutchman. This is a member of parliament from the governing Liberal Party, Anton Broeker. So it's more like a chert. They really get the hissing of the chert. Love might not trump hate, but in the Netherlands, they hate on chert. But what of our American version of Trump, which is to say Trump? He told an enthusiastic crowd of Trump supporters in Nashville that he would prefer the old version of his anti-immigration executive order. See, this was after a federal judge in Hawaii suspended the new executive order based mostly on intemperate words that Trump spoke before enthusiastic crowds. I just imagine at this Nashville event, some stenographer hired by the ACLU in the corner do go on, Mr. President. But let's remember who Trump is and how he got here. Trump first demonstrated his political judgment by advancing ideas about the immigration status of a president from Hawaii. Now we get a Hawaiian judge forcing President Trump's ideas over immigration into retreat. That's the kind of symmetry. But what of the ongoing investigation into wiretapping, quote unquote wiretapping? And I put it in quotes, unquote, because nobody ever talks about the quotes. And nobody ever talks about the fact that it was in quotes. But that's a very important thing. You know, there are lots of things nobody ever talks about. Uh, Hillary cheating on the debates, which, by the way, nobody mentions. Nobody mentions that Hillary received the questions to the debates. There was also like lots of. Things are done with uranium, including some bad things. Nobody talks about that. And then this thing that nobody ever talks about. And nobody ever mentions North Korea, where you have this maniac sitting there and he actually has nuclear weapons. No one ever talks about that. That was one claim that Trump made to Tucker Carlson of Fox excusing or explaining his charge of being wiretapped. That one or two of his four tweets where he alleged wiretapping, he did put wiretapping in quotes. Though there were two other tweets where he didn't put wiretapping in quotes. And there was also a tweet where he spelled tap wrong. T-A-P-P, he spelled it. Well, maybe what he was really saying was that Obama performed transabdominal preperitoneal hernia surgery on him, tap surgery along with tep surgery, two of the most popular hernia surgeries. And nobody is talking about that. Maybe he meant that Obama didn't wiretap him. Maybe he was saying that 
Obama taped The Wire. Obama loves the David Simon HBO show The Wire. And Trump just wanted to watch Omar and Bubbles. But now, where's the tape? Thanks, Obama. So those were some of the words that Trump formed in his mouth that he hoped some people would buy as an excuse to overlook the fact that he literally alleged that the past president wiretapped him. Trump also brought into play a TV show he once saw, and it wasn't The Wire. He told Tucker Carlson... It was a Fox show. I've been reading about things. I read in, I think it was January 20th, a New York Times article where they were talking about wiretapping. There was an article. I think they used that exact term. Uh, I read other things. I watched your friend Brett Baer uh, the day previous where he was talking about uh, certain very complex sets of things happening and wiretapping. Okay, let's say Obama did tap Trump's phone. And when I say Obama tapped him, I mean literally. There's Obama sitting there up on the wire like Lester or Prezbaluski before he became a teacher. And Obama is listening intently. And he hears Trump say certain word combos like where he was talking about certain very complex sets of things happening. Obama must be thinking, all right, something's going down. This is clearly code. This is not regular human speech. Certain sets of complex things Did you know that Steve Bannon's wife was busted for trying to sneak a cell phone into a prison and the code word was Pop-Tart? Do you want delivery of the Pop-Tart? Is it okay if it's a clamshell Pop-Tart? Do you need a 4G Pop-Tart? But these things, these complex things, that sounds really nefarious. And indeed it is. But I have the best explanation for what's going on. Trump, he is so convinced of his powers to convince that he just figures he only has to pronounce a couple of syllables and his people will buy it. So he said Brett Bear, but maybe he was thinking Bright Bart. If you say Bright Bart and Brett Bear, they sound kind of similar. The same kind of people are going to be convinced. And this whole tactic, it, it explains a lot of answers he's going to have to give. What about your infrastructure plan, Mr. President? Bill Bridge. Well, how do we pay it? By brick. Well, what about health care? Bad bill. What about the people who can't afford it? By bread. Okay, he's going into the burbling thing. Uh, Mr. President, should we call Melania? Brett Bride. Well, who should we call? Breitbart, bro. Breitbart? Oh, you want to call Milo? No, no. Bad, bad, big brain. Breitbart, bro. Oh, Bannon. You want us to call Steve Bannon. Is that right? Breit, Breitbart, Breitbart, Breitbart. There you go again, Mr. President. More 12-dimensional chess. Bye, bye. And that's it for today's show. After the war, Mary Wilson just couldn't get that into Harrisburg zoning proposals. After the war, just producer Chris Berube lost his taste for medicine hat hunting license disputes. Pre-conflict, Steve Lichtai was executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Post-conflict, he's just been listening to the Double X Gab Fest on a continuous loop on half speed. After Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, saw some things overseas... Meringue never tasted quite the same again. The gist, we hear the next season of the podcast Startup will be following around the podcast Embedded after they lose CPB funding. The resulting podcast, Indebted, is set to debut at number two on iTunes, unless someone finds Richard Simmons. And thanks for listening. I know you listen to podcasts. I can prove it. You just heard me say that. And unless you're actually in the room with me, get out of here, Dave. Unless you're Dave.
You know how to listen to podcasts. Now, I'm sure you want to spread the joy of podcasts. Or maybe you're the kind of person who only likes the bands that no one else likes. And then when they book big clubs, they're like, oh, I used to like them on their first album. We're still in the first album phase of this media. But we do have to grow it. Because remember, that band that you wanted to keep to yourself, they could break up due to lack of interest. So this is where the tripod campaign comes in. All this month, you want to find a friend, relative, a curious stranger. Okay, that could be fraught. And show them how to try podcasts. Hello, are you a stranger? You are a curious stranger. Let me show you my iPhone now. Okay, just take it, you know, pump the brakes on curious stranger a little. But get this person who you think or suspect might like podcasts. And then share your story on Twitter with the hashtag tripod. Okay, so you do whatever you can to get a new be into podcasting, but then afterwards you tweet about it and you do TRY pod, hashtag TRY pod. Together we could delete podcast unawareness.